here with uh, Father Hugh Gillespie. He is uh, with the De Montfort Fathers, and you give uh, retreats on Mary and true devotion, based on true devotion. And I wanted to ask you uh, about the true devotion text a little bit and about the Mariology of uh, St. Louis de Montfort. We were just having an interesting discussion just now about his focus. And uh, like, how would you describe his scriptural focus? Father de Montfort's uh, scriptural focus is it's remarkable in a couple different ways in that he seamlessly in his writing weaves biblical citations into his paragraphs without going out of his way always to identify them. It's as if it's part of his vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And in no small measure, it's a very liturgical scriptural vocabulary that he has. It's strongly informed by the Psalms of the breviary he was using and the, the Latin texts of the scripture readings that often occurred in the daily liturgy. Um, and because of that, it, um, it ranges very broadly across both testaments. And in fact, one of the things that's remarkable and enriching about St. Louis de Montfort's use of the scripture is the, the great use he makes of Old Testament passages for Our Lady, often surprising uses because he doesn't go to many of the old standbys. Um, rather, his typological reading and his mystical reading of the scripture allows him to surface some very beautiful connections that have been largely overlooked at times in other writers. Right, and you just said something very interesting to me too about uh, some of the church fathers, Irenaeus, talk about Mary as the new Eve. Mm -hmm. But he would make reference to, out of St. Paul, Jesus is the second Adam, the new Adam. But he wouldn't reference her as the new Eve. Right. He, he does on a couple of occasions, but it's clearly not in his writing mm -hmm. a central preoccupation. Rather, for St. Louis de Montfort, he has this unusual and beautiful, it's actually one of the things that first attracted me to him as I first began reading him, is this stunning idea of Mary as a place. Mm -hmm. And the center of gravity of his spirituality is literally the contemplation of the incarnational mystery. And so this contemplation of Jesus living in Mary, and in a sense, living and reigning in the womb of Mary in much the same way as he does in the bosom of his father in eternity. Mm. His prayer of consecration, for, uh, for example, the well-known act of total consecration, begins exactly that way with exactly that contemplation. Mm -hmm. And the self-offering flows out of that. And so this idea of the Lord reigning and residing in Mary um, evokes this parallel to the blessedness and splendor of heaven. And so for him, Jesus, the new Adam, is planted in the new Eden. Just as in the book of Genesis, the scripture says, God formed the man and planted him, placed him in the garden which he had prepared. For St. Louis de Montfort, this garden that has been prepared, the secret garden of the Lord's own delight, where he takes his rest right. and walks again with man, is Mary. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and we were... Uh, you know, I, I just come across uh, in True Devotion around paragraph 34 or something. He talks about Mary like taking root in a person's soul and working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to bring this 
fruitfulness out of, of the mm-hmm. soul. How do you understand that? Or maybe put that in layman's terms. <laughs> um, there, are, there are two ways that he comes at that idea, mm-hmm. depending on which of his works you're reading. The precise text from scripture is chapter 24 of the book of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, depending mm-hmm. on which version of the Bible you're working with. And in that section around verse 12, which he cites frequently in his writings, and again, as we were mentioning earlier, in the breviary that he used, that particular passage would make a regular appearance in the Saturday memorial of Our Lady in the Divine Office. Um, And so it was something he ran into repeatedly. And the church had already made a connection of that text with Our Lady that he noticed and began taking seriously. And here, St. Louis de Montfort speaks, depending on which work you're reading and where he cites it, there are two different ways he comes at that. And one is that this command, put your roots in my elect, literally dwell among them and dwell within them. And for St. Louis de Montfort, Mary is always an active presence. She's never merely a good example. Mm -hmm. She's never merely a role model. Mm -hmm. There's always an active agency that she has. And through her, the Holy Spirit himself is remarkably active. St. Louis de Montfort will stress. And again, this is one of the odd uses of language that he makes. He speaks about the barrenness of the Holy Spirit in that the Holy Spirit doesn't engender in all eternity another divine person. Mm. But in time, the Holy Spirit brings the divine word Mm. into the world through Mary. Mm. And she is the location, in a sense, again, that place where the Holy Spirit is uniquely fruitful, most powerfully and effectively fruitful. So that where Mary is, the Holy Spirit will do his most wonderful works. Right. And that most wonderful work is producing the virtues of Jesus Christ right. in the soul. So for Father de Montfort then, Mary taking root in one's life is, on the one hand, a reflection of her personal concern, her personal maternal concern, especially over the hearts of the, the elect, meaning those who are making it a point mm. to live a good Christian life. Right. And that, that solicitousness that she has will cause her to be active in those hearts in a particularly fruitful way. The other way that St. Louis de Montfort uses this and is probably more helpful in layman's terms is that this idea of Mary putting her roots in the elect is when the elect root devotion to Mary within themselves. Uh, when they have a spirituality of confident trust and surrender to her. Mm. You know, this is what it means, in a sense, for Father de Montfort to be like St. John and to let receive her into your home. It's the opening up mm. of the door of the household of your spiritual life mm-hmm. to Our Lady. But one does that not in the abstract or the general. One does that by practicing the movements and the elements of a genuine devotion to her. Mm. 
And for, for St. Louis de Montfort, the key to all of this is that one lives as a child of Our Lady. And did he cite John 19 much? Where, you know, John the disciple at the foot of the cross takes Mary into his own home or his own. Did, did he rely heavily on that passage? Surprisingly, he didn't. Um, it's one of the ironies, even in um, our Montfortian liturgies on the Feast of Our Founder, one of the options is exactly that passage from St. John's Gospel. Mm -hmm. And it's fairly unimportant in his writings. It's not absent, but it's not a central wellspring that he draws from. The one place where he makes very effective and powerful use of it is in a prayer he writes to the Lord Jesus asking for the grace of a deeper devotion to Mary. Mm. And um, in that prayer, he speaks about uniting himself with John at the foot of the cross to accept and receive Mary into himself. Right. and asking for the grace to do that in even a yet fuller and yet more perfect way. But for him, the way that the Lord has given us Mary is not primarily expressed through the commending at the foot of the cross. Mm. He locates that elsewhere precisely actually in the mystery of the incarnation. Mm. And isn't, uh, Luda Montfort talks a lot about drawing a fruitfulness from baptism and confirmation in the soul, right? The, the baptismal consecration that... Um, again, we want to be careful here. Uh -huh. um, in modern works explaining St. Louis de Montfort, mm -hmm. great stress is placed on baptism. In his writings, again, Father de Montfort mentions it hmm. surprisingly infrequently. In fact, the famous passage in True Devotion where he speaks of um, perfect devotion to Mary as being the radical living out of one's baptismal promises, he borrows that argument from his from the great founder of the French school, Pierre Cardinal de Berulle. It's not original to St. Louis de Montfort. Mm. Uh, that having been said, Father de Montfort dedicated himself to mission preaching. And mission preaching at his time had two aspects. It doesn't appear in his writings, but he would have been doing this. In the parishes, he was preparing people for confirmation. And in the mission, every mission that was being preached anywhere in Europe um, at the time had a moment where the baptismal promises were solemnly renewed. And Father de Montfort embraced that and did it with a particularly powerful and effective way. Mm. And he used elements of devotion to Mary as a way of making permanent or long-standing that renewal that was happening in his missions. Mm. He doesn't write about it in the sense that it's a, the theology of this is a central preoccupation for him. Right. But again, now backing up and getting back to why he doesn't use John 19. This is why. St. Louis de Montfort is not interested in that theology of Mary brings you to Jesus. St. Louis de Montfort is assuming you've already been baptized and therefore you have Jesus. Mm. It's the fundamental starting point of his spirituality. Mm. He's not trying to bring you to Jesus. Mm. He's trying to wake up in you the fact that you already have a relationship with him. Mm. And so you already have a relationship with Mary.
because of that. Um, and, and so again, he's not writing about baptism. He doesn't use the word frequently. But if you read True Devotion carefully, you see that there's this assumption that you already have a relationship with Jesus Christ that you got from baptism. And what we're interested in is how do you live that? How do you deepen that? How do you grow that? He writes very little about the baptismal promises, but mm. everything he writes is assuming you are a Catholic, you have been baptized, and this is about letting the life of Jesus claim you. Can you talk more about his, his incarnation emphasis, emphasis on the incarnation? Yeah. Um, Father de Montfort centers himself. He makes his home spiritually in the incarnational mystery. Mm -hmm. You can't understand his spirituality, Marian or otherwise, without catching that. And for St. Louis de Montfort, it is precisely the redemptive incarnation. In other words, it's not just the word became flesh, it is the word became flesh to save us. And so, the incarnation is the movement of Jesus to the cross. And, and so he will speak beautifully of the Lord choosing the cross in the womb of Mary, just as he chose it in the womb of his father in all eternity. And these, um, when Father de Montfort died, he was known as the apostle of the cross and the rosary. Yeah. And it's often overlooked today that the cross is equally important in his spirituality as his devotion to Mary is. Um, they're the two, you know, they're the, they're the anchors out of which this incarnational focus, or, or toward which, they're the, uh, they're the points to which this incarnational focus flows. Um, in Mary, the cross is chosen. Right. Um, the Lord has come to us for the cross. And the point of devotion to Mary is to be formed in the likeness of Christ so that we can bear the cross with him right. more faithfully than we have before. So for St. Louis de Montfort then, this idea of the incarnation becomes very important for two reasons. One, it's the beginning of the earthly mysteries of Jesus. And this idea then of uniting oneself with Jesus, one does it from the beginning, mm -hmm. not from the end. Mm -hmm. You don't jump in in midstream, mm -hmm. but rather for him, this idea of turning to Mary in trustful surrender yeah. is exactly like the self-emptying of Jesus, by which he becomes like a slave for us. Right. The, the name that Father de Montfort gives perfect devotion to Mary, in fact, is holy slavery. And the model is Jesus Christ emptying himself and becoming like a slave for us. And how does he do it? Through Mary, with Mary, in Mary, and by Mary. Mm. He's shown us the way to share his spirit. That's what we do. But then for St. Louis de Montfort, he quotes the Aristotelian and the Thomistic idea of the incarnation as being the greatest of all of the mysteries of Christ because it is like, in a sense, borrowing from Aristotle and Aquinas, the seed of the tree contains the height of the tree, all of the lumber the tree will give, the fruit the tree will give, the shade it will shed, the leaves it will drop, all of that is present in the seed, not visibly, mm -hmm. but in its potency. Mm -hmm. So for St. Louis de Montfort, the incarnation is where one finds enclosed in their potential, 
all of the mysteries of Jesus. Mm. And then there really is the sense of the complete Christ mm. in all of his mysteries, his whole life that will unfold, enclosed and splendidly present in the womb of Our Lady. And that's the other piece for St. Louis de Montfort. The incarnate word is never merely a baby. He is, but he's also alert and divine and active. The divinity of Christ is active in Mary, not passively present. And so Our Lady really is for him, in no small measure, like the throne of the Lord on earth. In his meditations on like maybe the stations of the cross, does uh, John 19 not come up there very much? Or? We don't have um, meditations on the stations oh. from his hand. What we do have from his hand are a couple meditations on the passion. Normally his meditations are so locked into Jesus that you don't pay, he pay, doesn't pay much attention to the other characters, with the exception of Our Lady. Mm. You know, he'll mention Simon, he'll mention Veronica, he'll mention the women, mm -hmm. he'll mention John, but he doesn't linger long with them. Yeah. Um, in his hymns, he has a remarkable series of hymns, which I refer to as the Holy Week hymns. He never called them that. But he titles them literally Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You know, through Saturday, mm -hmm. a week's worth of hymns on the fat, on the passion of the Lord. Mm. And they, they follow essentially the mysteries of the rosary, mm. the sorrowful mysteries. And so a hymn on the agony, a hymn on the scourging, a hymn on the crowning with thorns, a couple hymns on bearing the cross, right. a hymn of Jesus dying on the cross, and a hymn of Our Lady at the foot of the cross. Uh, what, uh, what would be the distinction... I, I mean, we speak about that fruitfulness and Mary as like a new Eden uh, between, because uh, you see that image, that right, reflection in, in women and spiritual maternity being spiritual mothers. Would it just be a difference in degree for Mary or is there a difference kind of in kind? You know what I mean? That uh... Oh, no, there, there's definitely a difference in kind <laughs> with Our Lady. Yeah. Um, and in part because of that unique way that the Holy Spirit is involved with Our Lady and that unique place that Mary has as that, um, that vessel through which the graces of God come to us, um, which is not entirely like our own ability to plead for those graces. Mm -hmm. So the, the uniqueness, and I've heard John Paul II talk about, you know, she participated in the events themselves. And, but the, uniqueness of the Holy Spirit working with Our Lady, how would you describe that? Um, that is a tricky one to mm -hmm. put words to. The greatest of all of the Holy Spirit's works is the incarnation of the Word. And it is done only in, with, and through Mary. But then, at the end of the life of Jesus, as the church is about to be sent into the world, what do we see again? The Holy Spirit comes down only on that church, which is gathered around Our Lady. Mm -hmm. 
of Pentecost. Right. And once again, the great work of the Holy Spirit involves Our Lady. The body of the incarnate Word is produced by the Holy Spirit in Mary, and the Church as the body of Christ is produced on Pentecost by the Holy Spirit, Mm. um, working with that community. And so Mary, paradoxically, is both mother and member of the Church. Mm. She's both very... And so on the one hand, in the Incarnation, she is both virgin and mother. And on Pentecost, what do we see? She is mother and member. Mm. Um, the, these two beautiful paradoxical realities mm-hmm. that, that are both gloriously present in her, and we can say that about no one else. Right. Say that one more time. That was good. <laughs> How it's present in her. Uh, no. these, these two, you know, these, 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 these realities are paradox. How can you be both virgin and mother? Right, right. Um, and then of the church, she's the, mem- she's the mother of the church. In fact, Pope Francis just added that feast to our calendar. Right. And yet she's also member of the church. Right, right. She's a member of the body of which she is a mother. Right. And right. so on the one hand, she is one of us as our sister. Mm. And yet on the other hand, she cares for us as our mother. Right. And it's one and the same person with both of those roles. Right. I don't know if you've thought much about this or written or spoken, but um, I've heard like at Vatican II and Lumen Gentium's document on Mary, it didn't address really the, um, like the role of the sacraments and sacramental grace, the grace we received through the sacraments, and then the grace we received through Mary's intercession how do we understand those two or Mary's relationship to the sacraments um, as she's known as the mediatrix of all graces and yet we have sacraments of the church. So how does that interplay? <laughs> I think just in a few minutes here. You know. <laughs> there we go. Let's go into small questions. <laughs> I haven't, um, I haven't written or spoken much yeah, on yeah. exactly that relationship. And yeah. um, your question reminds me that I need to give it a bit more thought. Yeah. Um, I was asked that by a new convert to the uh-huh. church. We were talking about Mary, and it was like a, so a simple, obvious question. I, I didn't have any answer. <laughs> I even asked this doctor. Um, but but um, the, again, going back to what we just said about Pentecost and Mary as both mother and member of the church. The sacraments are effective actions of the church, which in no small measure comes into the being as the fruit of Our Lady's prayers mm-hmm. and the fruit of Our Lady's presence. And so it's not as if Our Lady is directly interceding at the moment of every sacramental celebration. Mm-hmm. And yet the very church that is celebrating those sacraments mm-hmm. is in no small measure the fruit of grace that has come into the world through Our Lady. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think we get into trouble when we fall into the trap of, is this particular instance an example of Our Lady's Mm -hmm. mediation, as opposed to understanding the broader way in which the Lord gives His grace to the world. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's it's not an either or, it's either through, it's either sacramental grace through the church or 
or it's Our Lady's mediation as if these are mutually exclusive things. Right. Um, but if we take seriously what the church has long said about the importance of the disciples gathering around Our Lady for that original Pentecost novena, mm -hmm. and that for nine days, she is not simply praying with them. Her prayers are teaching them. Mm. And she is showing them how to open up. And so on a lot of levels, the church that comes into being as the well-ordered body of Christ, and this is an idea that is very important for St. Louis de Montfort, this idea that Mary, the mother of the head, is also the mother of of the members and this motherhood produces a well-ordered body mm. you know the Holy Spirit through her motherhood puts the body in good working order mm. well if that well-ordered body is working well it is in some level the fruit of the agency of the mother right right I even think of that like uh, the mother in a home I just heard somebody give a reflection about how love of God passes in a special way, in a powerful way through the heart of the mother into the home. Mm -hmm. And I really, I thought that was a beautiful. There's a church on the island of Cebu in the Philippines. It's an old church, the Church of St. Michael. It's hundreds of years old. I don't know the exact age. I was there a couple of years ago. And there's this marvelous mural on the ceiling. And um, it connects in its own way to the question that we, we've just been engaging, this, mm -hmm. this issue of sacraments and Our Lady's mediation. Mm -hmm. And literally, it shows Our Lady sitting enthroned on top of a hill, and from her, under her throne, a waterfall is coming that breaks up into seven streams mm -hmm. that flow down into the symbols of sacraments. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so hundreds of years ago, you see just artistically this idea that the grace that the Trinity would give us that comes into the world through Mary yeah. is the same grace right. that, that we experience through the sacramental agency of the church. Right. Yeah, I had a professor in seminary always told us that, that the, the logic of the incarnation is continued in the sacraments, uh -huh. that those visible signs. And that, that's what I explained to my friend who asked me the question and said, well, she's... Yeah, she's a type member exemplar of the church. And so you go to church to receive the sacrament. So there's just a right. connection there. That, what You know, in speaking about these issues too, it makes me wonder about the context in which St. Louis de Montfort lived that, you know, now we're in this time of stress, new evangelization. Um, and he's in a much different context, right? In the, is it 1700s in mm -hmm. France that... Um, I would assume a much stronger Catholic culture, presumed faith, more live faith in the day-to-day? -day. Yes and no. Um, Father de Montfort is at great pains to point out the rather moribund status of the church in many areas. Mm. Um, the overall culture, much more Christian than we see today. Yes, that's mm. true. Um, yet there were great numbers of uncatechized, and the church itself was not strong especially in the rural areas of france where he did his work mm. you know in the cities yes but um in other areas no there were many of the places he went to had been badly neglected 
um, had poorly trained clergy in some areas serving. Um, and many places, the faithful themselves had given themselves over to other pursuits, and a big part of his work was bringing them back. One of the biggest differences, however, though, was it was possible in his time for a mission preacher to do different things than are possible today. You know, for example, I, I half-jokingly, but only half-jokingly ask people, do you know how long St. Louis de Montfort's Lenten missions were? And the answer is, Lent. Uh, you know, these days you're lucky if you get four nights and just the night. Right. But it, you know, all day for five weeks, yeah. multiple services in the church, the mission team would take over the village. Wow. Um, and mission, missions in parishes were once in a lifetime events, they weren't annual occurrences. Mm. Um, and because of that, they were transformative. Whereas today, one of the big differences is we're trying to fit in moments of renewal into even a Catholic schedule that isn't all that open to being renewed. Right. Um, and um, you know that's a, that's a fundamental difference that mm -hmm. you know where I, I really think the church needs to look at mm -hmm. um, where so much of Christian life is on the fringes just of life. Mm. You know, so many of our families struggle with time for prayer, time to get to church, and there are so many completing claims on them. Mm -hmm. But even in our parishes, our clergy are burdened with administration, with other matters. And this idea of a full-on engagement of the faith, um, in his time, whatever the difficulties were, right. at least there was a possibility Right. Of, of that that we don't see today. Was uh, Jansenism still a problem at, during his day? It wasn't, it wasn't. Um, the Jansenism at the time of St. Louis de Montfort had, um, had evolved. And um, sometimes that period is victimized by historical scholarship by the Jansenists become the villain of all the stories. Mm -hmm. um, Jansenism, on the one hand, morphed into a certain, certain kind of Gallicanism, and um, where the issue was not what we classically would look at as rigid and rigorous and unfeeling Jansenist theology. It was the resistance to Roman authority. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a strong segment in church, in, in the church in France, that had the Gallican version or the Gallican strain of Jansenism. Mm. Then there was classical Jansenism that had left its effects in many areas. But the other thing that was going on was Calvinism, mm. uh, which has some interesting similarities with Jansenism, um, including these notions of absolute predestination. Um, many of the Huguenots in Western France in those areas were Calvinists. And so when Father de Montfort was preaching, it was into that matrix that he was working. And so you'll see these repeated insistences on fidelity to the teaching of the church and the authoritative teaching of the Holy Father. Um, and there's a reason why he's emphasizing this, right. because there's a strain which is insisting we will pick and choose which authoritative pronouncements we'll acknowledge. Um, at the same time, 
as bold and dramatic as his preaching was, and as strong as he was in wanting to convict the sinner of his guilt, St. Louis de Montfort would always do so in a way that stressed the tender readiness of the Lord to forgive those who came to him. Right. Um, and so it, so it was this interesting, um, this interesting matrix in which he had to preach. And then on top of that was the worldliness that was creeping in um, on every element of the culture. Yeah, I think Our Lady, devotion to Our Lady, I've heard people say this, that some heresies or misguided emphasis or some forms of Protestantism maybe, it can get harsh and you know maybe stress human effort and discipline and things uh, over grace. But Our Lady has a way of softening that or reminding us of the surrender, the fiat, that we're, re we're receptive. Um, he does, to... it, it, she does. And um, the other thing that comes with the spirituality that St. Louis de Montfort teaches is one of the other dangers of some of these perspectives is a certain spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance. And it's not just that I'm doing all the work myself. It's one of the dangers some of these rigorous frameworks promote is if I can thrive in this, I'm better than you. It's um, kind of a masculinization of the church. It is. And, it's a, it's a, and, and it, it produces a certain spiritual elitism. Everybody right. wants to fancy himself as the, the elite soldier for Christ. Right. You know, and that appeals to a certain romanticism within us, but there's a pride that lurks there. And so for Father de Montfort, one of the essential elements of turning to Mary is it begins in no small measure with my recognizing, in fact, that I do need help. And the minute I recognize that and admit it, I'm already turning away from the proud spirit of Adam. Right. And I, I give the Lord much more honor because I say, I don't know how to approach you fully as I should, I need help to do it better. Right. The great preoccupation for him and the French school of spirituality is that, it sounds strange to say it, is this idea of respect for Jesus. Charles de Condren, the great theologian once said, there's no shortage of people who love Jesus, but there are precious few who actually respect him. <laughs> and, and what he meant by that was the issue is, it's not enough. You know, in the beginning, okay, just get to Jesus. But sooner or later, the issue has to be not just how do I get to the Lord, but how do I get to the Lord in a way that actually honors him? Mm. Is this about my honor and what I want, or is it really about honoring the Lord? And if it's about honoring the Lord, maybe I need to look at myself and say, do I really know how to do that well? Or could I learn? Right. And so for Father de Montfort and for the others of the French school, one of the important elements in the role of Our Lady is she's that one who knows better than me. And so that when I go to the Lord with her, by humbling myself and admitting I can learn to approach him with greater honor, I've already begun to honor him more. Mm. And I begin to purify my work, my service, my preaching, whatever it is, of my pride. Mm. Um, and, um, 
And, and so it's, it's one of those subtle dimensions of the spirituality, and it's part of the very essence of this idea of consecration to Mary, mm. of it sitting on the, it sits on the idea of even to do the good things I want to do. On my own, they don't go as far as they should. But with mm. someone's help, my good works go further. Right. Did St. Louis de Montfort talk about like the fall and maybe, you know, the question of like why Eve was tempted first and speak of Mary as the new Eve, as we mentioned before, but has, did he write about that? He speaks about the fall and he speaks about the garden regularly, but not in terms of a systematic unpacking of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, he speaks about the fall in his book, The Love of Eternal Wisdom, um, in terms of the sheer helpless terror of fallen Adam, who looks out in front of him and sees heaven is closed and he can't open it. And in front of him, waiting at the end of his life, hell is opened and he can't close it. Mm-hmm. And it is this that spurs eternal wisdom, the second person of the Trinity, to this great act of merciful compassion Mm. that says, I will save him. Mm. Um, So he speaks of a fall that way. And and then in that context of the fall, he speaks, and one of the single, arguably after the Annunciation verses, the single most important text of scripture for St. Louis de Montfort about Mary is Genesis 3, verse 15. The woman opposed to the serpent. Mm. The woman that God gives us. Mm. Who has a fun... And and St. Louis de Montfort loves going back to this verse, which the church has traditionally read on celebrations of Our Lady's sinlessness, her immaculate conception which was a very strong devotion in France at his time, and it was a missionary devotion, because of this idea of conflict between Our Lady and her son and the evil in the world that must be overcome. Um, And so for him, he takes seriously what the scripture says about a hatred between the serpent and the woman. Mm. He's citing the Latin. Mm And which is enmity, is right, right, which is basically a hatred. Hatred. And 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 he, you know, and he says, this is the one hatred, the one enmity that comes from God. Ah. You know, we, we like to say that none, none of that comes from God. And Saint Louis Montfort says, don't be so quick, because it says right here, I will put this between you two. Right. And and it's this idea then of this unrelenting opposition. Yeah. between Our Lady and the serpent, between Satan and Mary. Yeah. And the proud serpent, he says, is paradoxically more frightened of Mary than he is of the Lord. Mm. Not because she's more powerful, but because it's more humiliating for him mm. to be overcome by she who is this little creature right. than it is to be overcome by the God who, who he, he can't hope to resist. Right. Um, and it's this, but this idea that Our Lady not just, doesn't just protect her children from the attacks of the serpent, 
isn't just the one through whom the Savior comes, but she's involved in the battle against the serpent, and that there will be those children of hers who will likewise not merely be protected by her, but be those who resolutely set themselves to confront right, the victorious. presence of in the world. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, doesn't he reference... I forget which Old Testament woman put the tent peg through the guy's head. <laughs> I mean, she, like that was a type of Mary. Yeah, you know? jail. <laughs> jail. And, I believe that was jail. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think some. I would think too that that would appeal to some kind of like a modern woman's sensibilities. You know, they want to make a difference, be leaders right. and stuff. And you can see a certain fierceness and the love of Mary that is. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. What's the word? No false compromise with evil. Right. You know, or acceptance of it. Yeah. Complete enmity. When you, and I also think of Revelation 12, right? The battle between the dragon, the serpent, right. and the woman. Yeah. Did he reference that? Not frequently. Yeah. Not frequently because, again, the, the reference from Genesis hmm. did enough for him. Hmm. Um, you know, there, there are echoes of it, but... You know, the, the battle is joined, the victory is sure. Mm. Um, and, um, and so for him, the, the Genesis passage, which more fully figured in some of the more ancient and deeper theologies of Mary and the church, right. was more attractive to him. Right, right. When you read like John Paul II's Mariology, his catechesis on Mary and his encyclical. Um, do you you see very strong St. Louis de Montfort themes? Or do you recognize? I mean, that was his motto, totus tuus, that he took from St. Louis de Montfort. Um, how do you think he was influenced by her, by him? There were some, um, there are some curious uh, influences by St. Louis de Montfort. In um, in Saint John Paul II's uh, papacy, the um, the Redemptorist Mater, the encyclical, it's been a while since I've worked through it, mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm speaking at a distant memory. Mm -hmm. um, it is um, one of the things that is striking about it is there's this absolute confidence in the encyclical of the importance of Mary mm -hmm. and the power of devotion to Mary, mm -hmm. not just to make a positive, but even a transformative di difference in Christian life. Right. And that is very much right. um, St. Louis de Montfort's perspective. When we were ramping up to the new millennium in the year 2000, the model for the Jubilee year, open to Jesus Christ, mm -hmm is an echo of a famous incident in the life of St. Louis de Montfort. Mm. He was preaching in the town of Dinan in France. And after the mission service, he was wandering the streets and he found a beggar, um, sick and dying in a gutter, literally. And so he picked him up. Father de Montfort was a very big, powerful man. Mm. He picked him up and he carried him through the streets to the house where the mission band was staying. And the door had already been locked for the night. And he wasn't going to put this poor man down for any reason. And so there's a remarkable dramatic moment where he woke up half the town. 
He, st he stands there kicking the door. <laughs> and as the, the sound of his foot banging on the door is echoing through the streets, he begins bellowing and he had a powerful voice, literally open to Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, wow. And, you know, and, and, and just the symbolism of this, yeah. banging on the door where the preachers were staying. <laughs> <laughs> and holding this wounded man with absolutely no dignity right and yelling open to christ and it was quite clear he's not saying open to me because i'm standing in the person of right, jesus right, he's right. referring right to uh yeah. <coughs> um right. you know but that idea like john paul ii doing the same thing that this idea of telling the church not the world telling the church open yeah. Right. To Jesus Christ. Right. That's a great uh, summary ending point for us. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me.